Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Well, welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation, the war against cancel culture, what the United States can learn from Great Britain. I'm director of the Simon Center here at the Heritage Foundation, where we're co-hosting this event with the Thatcher Center for Freedom. And let me just take a minute and offer just a little bit of historical perspective before we get into it. Uh, the rise of the cancel culture, both in Great Britain and the United States, it's not really a new problem. It's an old problem. Go back to uh, ancient Greece and the trial of Socrates, 399 BC. The man on trial is a war hero, he's a philosopher, he's dominated the intellectual life uh, of Athens for decades. Uh, but he's accused now of insulting the gods and of corrupting the youth of Athens. How is he corrupting the youth of Athens? Well, he's challenging and provoking his students. He's challenging them to think, to learn to think. He wants people to have the freedom to search for truth wherever they can find it. And despite threats and insults, he just won't stop talking. <laughs> and that's why he's on trial. That's why the leaders of Athens, the establishment, wants to cancel Socrates. So he gets the choice, permanent exile or death by poison. He chooses the hemlock, of course, but not before ripping into his accusers. Here's a piece of what he said. You, my friend, a citizen of the great and mighty and wise city of Athens, are you not ashamed of caring so little about wisdom and truth and the greatest improvement of the soul, which you never regard or heed at all? There's a prophetic word for the 21st century, right? The legacy of Socrates is his willingness to die, to die for the right to speak his mind, to debate ideas in the public square in the pursuit of truth. This has been one of the foundational principles of liberal democratic societies for centuries, and now it seems it's up for grabs. The cancel culture has returned, infecting the academic life of some of Britain's most important colleges and universities. But the conservative administration, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson, is fighting back. Under new government proposals announced earlier this year, students and academics will be able to sue English universities for violating uh, their right to free speech. Education Minister Gavin Williamson, I am deeply worried about the chilling effect on campuses of unacceptable silencing and censoring. And then Prime Minister Boris Johnson said, Freedom of speech is at the very core of our democracy. I hope he's right. Let me invite uh, our panelists here to join me now online as I introduce them briefly. We got full bios uh, for you available. Just a brief introduction uh, for each one. Thank you, gentlemen. Welcome. Welcome to this table. Uh, Douglas Murray, British author and journalist, best-selling author and journalist based in Britain. His books include, and I've got, I've got a copy right here uh, from on the shelf there. His books include, uh, uh, the Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam, and also The Madness of Crowds, the Sunday Times, New York One bestsellers. Uh, he's been an associate editor at The Spectator magazine since 2012. I first encountered Douglas Murray uh, back in London more than 15 years ago. Uh, he was at a debate. He was battling the, the radical left and, and militant Islamists in a packed auditorium. It was a pretty angry crowd. And I thought to myself, this is a young man you want to watch. Well, we're still watching, Douglas, so carry on over there. Calvin Robinson, 
political commentator and columnist. Calvin is a senior fellow for education policy at the Policy Exchange there in the UK, former director and governor of the McKellar Community School, former assistant principal at a state school in North London, regular contributor uh, to the Telegraph, the Daily Mail. Uh, Calvin, you were recently disinvited from delivering a talk, I think before an education group, on political bias in education, and they disinvited you. So without having to even show up, you kind of made your point, I think, about political bias. We'll get into that. And then uh, Dr. Niall Gardner, director of the Margaret Thatcher Center here, uh, Center for Freedom here at the Heritage Foundation, a leading authority on Brexit. Uh, before joining uh, Heritage, Dr. Gardner served as foreign policy aide to Lady Thatcher in her London office, assisting her with her final book, Statecraft for a Changing World. Dr. Gardner is a prominent expert on U.S.-British relations, U.S. foreign policy, uh, and the transatlantic alliance. If you find yourself ever in a rhetorical knife fight, you want Niall on your side. I count him among my closest friends. All right, uh, gentlemen, let's get into it uh, with some opening questions here for each of you. Douglas Murray, let me, let me go to you first, uh, Doug. Doug, you wrote about the cancel culture years ago, uh, really, before it was called the cancel culture. You were observing some of this. Uh, you were one of the first to raise the alarm when militant Islamists, for example, were trying to shut down speech uh, in Great Britain. Is there a connection, do you think, Douglas, between that problem, the militant Islamic attempt to silence speech, and the problem of cancel culture now in Britain? And maybe as a, as a tangent to that, uh, uh, to that question, uh, in addition to it, what explains this thoroughly illiberal mindset in Great Britain right now, the attack on academic freedom, freedom of speech? Take, take it, Doug, go ahead. Uh, well, first of all, thank you. Um, and you were right, uh, Joe, in your introduction that this is in some ways not a new phenomenon. Uh, attempts to cancel, silence people are uh, as old as our species. Uh, and we have records of this from ancient Greece, ancient Rome, uh, all the ancient texts give examples of this. What is new is coming in part uh, from the technological revolution which we've been undergoing in recent decades. It's often been said, and a number of people are credited with this quote, uh, that all uh, innovations uh, have consequences which are overstated in the short term and underestimated in the long term. And at the beginning of the internet, that was very much the case. People overstated at the time what the short-term effects of the internet were going to be. Everyone underestimated what the long-term effects were going to be. And we are living through some of those long-term effects at the moment. Effects such as, for instance, uh, the, the ability of what uh, my friend Eric Weinstein has described as the chihuahua effect. The chihuahua effect is a very annoying, yappy, irritating dog that yaps away at the side of you that used to just irritate the person it was beside, now can gain the attention of the entire world through social media. It can yap that it has had its foot trodden on. Maybe it has, maybe it's made it up, but it can do that and it can seek to get the attention of the entire globe. And then everybody is asked, what do you have to say to this small yappy dog who's making all this noise? Do you deny its pain? Do you not see it has a point? And so on and so on. This is uh, an enormous change in human communication. It means that small, vociferous, and angry groups of people can do much more running than they ever could 
uh, in our culture uh, before. Uh, there's one other aspect from that which, 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 which I should just mention that goes back to what you said about academic freedom. Everything about uh, the academy, everything about the university system uh, has traditionally been elite in a very specific sense of the term. It is for a small number of people uh, who, whose conversations could not be understood, would not be understood by a wider group. So if I were to, if, if, if you and I were to um, break into a philosophy seminar now at almost any university in the world, uh, first year undergraduates might be discussing, um, is it morally wrong to eat babies? Uh, that's a very common you know, beginner question in a philosophy and an ethics course. Uh, to the outside world, you could very easily turn around and say, Look at these immoral maniacs. They don't know that it's wrong to eat babies. They're even discussing it. Everything about them is immoral and wicked, and, and we must stop them. My point is, is that there are different conversations that have always gone on in different groups of people, and academic conversations should be protected precisely because it is not expected to be something which is transmitted out to everyone and understandable by everyone. And that has changed. There has been the disappearance, what I describe in the maddest of crowds, as the disappearance of the divide between private and public language. So that a conversation between any two people used to be possible that one of them would spill the beans, tell people about what had been said. But today, any conversation, the one we're having today, could be between us and all the people who've joined us. Or if one of us says something that somebody decides to misinterpret and run with in a malicious fashion, could suddenly be a matter for everyone online, everyone who uses Twitter, everyone who uses one of these megaphone mediums. That has changed everything because it makes people effectively have to speak, and this includes in academia, effectively have to speak and communicate always as if they are simultaneously speaking only to the people in front of them and also potentially to the entire globe. Hmm. No wonder our era is deranging itself. Well, well, that's an absolutely fascinating analysis, Douglas, fascinating. The, the, the burden that places then on individuals, particularly in the academy, the, the lack of a distinction now between public and private, the distinctive role of the university, what a burden that places. We're going to come back to that. Thank you uh, for those remarks. Calvin, um, you have taken a pretty courageous stand, it seems to me, as I've been following your press clippings over here, uh, taking on uh, critical race theory, uh, rejecting the concept of institutional racism, rejecting the cancel culture. You have been severely criticized, targeted by the race lobby there in Great Britain. I, I have a, a, a sort of a personal question, wanting to know what, mo what has motivated you to stick your neck out this way, number one, and number two, uh, how do you explain what's happening in Great Britain now, given its long history of a commitment to free speech and academic freedom? So the first first part of that question is, why, why have you been sticking your neck out and making yourself so vulnerable uh, to the to the mob? Um, why or how do I do it? I have no idea, to be honest with you. I ask myself that question every single day. Um, <laughs> but no, honestly, we've reached a stage now, at least in the UK, where 
there are certain conversations that only certain demographics are allowed to have. So the reason I stand up and speak about these issues is because I want to get us back to a place where anyone can talk about them. You know, I always said when I entered politics, I never want to talk about race because I don't want to be pigeonholed as the guy that talks about race being mixed race. But a straight white male can no longer have a part in the conversation. They're disregarded. So I'm I'm saying things that they are no longer able to say um, until we can all come back to the table and we can have an open debate and an open conversation and move forward. I don't think you can, you can ever have um, a true conversation about race relations while you're ostracizing one part of the demographic or one part of the community. Uh, it's not helpful in any way. Uh, and where has this come from? Um, in all honesty, I think from the mainstream media in the US, we seem to be, for some reason, importing drama from across the, the, the uh, other side of the continent, other side of the globe. Um, I'm not sure why. We seem to be about roughly, you know, it's commonly said we're about six months behind what's happening in the US. But whenever we see something happening over there, we copy and paste it over here. You know, all of the horrible, nasty stuff that's been going on in Portland now seems to be taking place in Bristol in the UK. You know, we've, we've got Antifa over here for the first time. Um, and it's troubling to me because it's a different conversation. You know, we, we need to have conversations around race, obviously. Um, in this country, we've made a lot of progress over the last decade or two, um, and uh, same in America, but different progress and different levels. And when we have people out on English streets campaigning about ACAB and defund the police for br police brutality and issues that aren't really affecting us, you know, stop shooting young black kids, you know, our police don't have guns over here. They are quite literally copying the placards from American protests, which are being, as we know, instigated by the mainstream media over there who are pushing this, this woke narrative. It's unhelpful, it's divisive, and quite frankly, we need, we need to all stand up against uh, what, what's being perpetuated because if we want to truly make progress, we have to work together. And I, the way I see it, the hard left um, supported by the mainstream media is pushing toxicity and divisiveness, and it's not helping race relations, it's not helping any of these arguments. Um, so that, that's why I think we are where we are. Wow. Calvin, thank you for that. It's on the one hand, incredibly encouraging what you said, but also disturbing. The idea that you are importing America's dystopia on these questions. And I think we'll probably unpack that before we're done. Why in the world is Britain importing our our our, our dystopia? Let me uh, take it over to Niall here. Niall, I think one of the questions a lot of people in our audience are going to have is, well, why should Americans uh, care about the cancel culture debates uh, in Great Britain? And uh, what's the relationship, if there is one, between what's happening in the United States and Great Britain? Calvin has just suggested a relationship, but why should Americans care about the course of events over there? Well, that's a, that's a great uh, question there, uh, Joe. Um, and, you know, I have to say, well, firstly, of course, I mean, the US and the UK are so closely intertwined that, you know, the council culture uh, debate that we're seeing at the moment is a, is a transatlantic uh, debate. And as um, Calvin uh, pointed out, a lot of the, uh, the very dangerous developments that you've seen in the United States in recent years with the rise of a sort of, uh, you know, deeply intolerant uh, woke culture that has been transported across the Atlantic, uh, it not only threatens the UK, but also many European countries as well. And it's, it's significant that French President Emmanuel Macron has actually pushed back very strongly against cancel culture, uh, which he sees as a, as a threat to, uh, to France. And, and Macron has, to his credit on this issue, pointed out that you know, no statues or monuments will be torn down in, in France and that his government will proudly stand up for, for French culture. 
and that's the right message to to send and i i don't agree of course with macron on brexit but i fully agree with him on uh you know with regard to his fight against what he sees as council culture being imported from uh, from the united states and you now uh, see actually um, a significant backlash from uh, british conservatives against uh, this uh, latest US export, which is the woke council culture. And, and you've seen some uh, some major pieces in the British press recently. Uh, one thinks of Ed West's excellent piece in the Sunday Times on exactly this, this issue, pushing back against uh, really a left-wing extremism crossing the Atlantic into the United Kingdom and being adopted, of course, by the by the British left and, and of course by the by the Labour Party and the, and the various um, you know, parts of the of the, the left wing establishment in the UK, uh, and so I think that um, the British fight back, uh, Joe, which you referenced earlier, and Douglas and, and Calvin are an important part of that fight back. This really matters to U.S. conservatives because American conservatives are looking closely at how the British are fighting back, and at the moment in the United States, we have uh, probably the most left wing U.S. administration in American history, the Biden uh, presidency, which has completely bought into the whole woke council culture agenda, even to the extent that you have the, the US ambassador to uh, the United Nations just a few days ago, giving a speech describing the United States basically as an institutionally racist country. And then that speech being fully backed by, uh, by the White House. Uh, and so you now have uh, the US presidency advancing uh, this extremist left-wing agenda. Now, across the Atlantic in the United Kingdom, you have a, a conservative government and a very strong conservative government in place uh, that is standing up to the uh, the council culture agenda. And uh, I was uh, just re-watching uh, yesterday the, the brilliant speech by uh, Kemi Badenoch, the UK Equalities Minister in the House of Commons, where she made it clear that critical race theory uh, had no place in British schools. And this is a, a speech I think that, that all uh, American conservatives should, should watch. In fact, all Americans should watch it really because it has such important uh, messages uh, for, uh, for the United States as well as for, for Great Britain. And you have a British government that rejects firmly this racially divisive message that the American left is sending. It's a poisonous message that uh, really sows uh, the seeds of, of racial division and, and discord and animosity. Uh, and the British government is firmly rejecting this. And also, uh, you have as well British uh, government ministers, Priti Patel, for example, the, the Home Secretary, standing up firmly to the, to the mob, uh, attempting to tear down statues across British cities. Uh, you have... Um, uh, multiple British uh, ministers who are uh, making statements against council uh, culture and the prime minister himself has made it clear that he does not support council culture in any way. Uh, and, uh, and so you have at every level of the British government, a very, very, a very strong opposition to uh, the kind of far left wing uh, messaging that you are seeing being promoted by, by the Biden administration, by Democrats in, in Congress. And so what happens in the UK, I think, really matters for, for the United States here. And it's also, in many respects, a role model for uh, a future US administration uh, post-Biden to fight back against the, uh, the, the narrative of the left.
Thank you for that, Niall. And I think we're going to want to get into that in terms of your evaluation of how Great Britain is coping with that, especially Calvin on that question, and given your role in education there, Calvin. But I also want to unpack this a little bit more. Douglas, you've, you've spent time in the United States. You were here uh, uh, the election year uh, observing, and it's often good for us Americans to hear from our British friends how they see what's happening here in the United States. How do you evaluate what's happening with regards to canceled culture? You've begun to unpack it a bit in talking about these technological issues, but unpack it some more for us, Douglas, what you see, what we should know that maybe we were not really appreciating from your vantage point. Well, the principal thing, you're correct. I was traveling throughout uh, much of the United States in the run-up to the uh, election last year. Um, uh, went to Trump rallies and went to Portland, mixed with Antifa for a few nights as I saw them burning their city. Um, and uh, this is all a manifestation of a deeper issue that's going on in America. And to this observer, at any rate, uh, this is what is happening. There is a fundamental uh, dispute over what America is that has, I think, never been uh, more publicly uh, fought over. Uh, the, the cancel culture about which we're speaking today is one manifestation of the consequences of that. It is not itself actually the issue. The issue is the one underneath that, which is that there are very large numbers of people in America today, uh, pluralities in some polls, who believe that, that what were fundamentals of the Republic uh, until just a few years ago are now up for grabs and changeable. Uh, this, uh, just uh, as they were speaking, GOP uh, leaders uh, just written a letter uh, to the Biden administration trying to push back on the reports that the administration is encouraging the teaching of critical race theory in history and civics lessons in schools in America. Uh, I was on American TV this morning making the point that just five or six years ago, if you said to somebody, the, when was the when was America founded? When, when did America start? And they'd said 1619. You said, oh dear, our history teaching isn't quite what it could be. Uh, if you'd have said, we will use books written by an author you haven't heard of yet and try to use that, I'm thinking of Ibrahim X. Kendi, use them to push through teaching in all American schools. You'd have thought, well, why would you do that? There's somebody we haven't even heard of a few years ago. Why would you suddenly use their rather ill-thought-out uh, as the basis for all American education? It, it seems to make no sense. What is happening is that there is a, a very serious attempt at a very high level in the media, politics, and more to reformulate what America is. It's exceptionally dangerous, it seems to me, for a lot of reasons. But just one that comes up from something that Niall just referred to in the remarks of Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield the other day at the United Nations. Um, Ambassador Thomas Greenfield made these comments about America, about how uh, um, um, America was founded in sin and is today still a deeply racist country. And who was one of the next countries up at the UN but China, who agreed fully with the American ambassador? Couldn't believe it's luck. Couldn't believe it's luck that the American ambassador should come to the UN and talk about her own country's racism. Uh, what's more, at the first meeting in Alaska in March between American, uh, the new American Secretary of State and his Chinese counterparts, the same thing happened. 
the American Secretary of State attempted to talk about uh, issues of human rights abuses carried out at the moment by the Chinese Communist Party in Hong Kong, in the Uyghur provinces and more. And as this uh, um, introduction occurred, the next thing that happened was that the ambassador, the, the representative uh, from China on that occasion said, the American uh, ambassador is not in any position to lecture us because he said, you, America is in the unprecedented position of having confessed to the fact that it is guilty, having come and confessed to the fact that it is racist. So you, a self-confessedly racist country, are in no position to tell us that we should not imprison a million Uyghur Muslims. You are in no position to tell us what we should do in Hong Kong. You have already admitted yourselves guilty. And the only thing that their American counterparts could do was to say things like, well, it's good to sort of admit your own sins in order to try to get over them. These are very, very weak responses to what are now major international issues. Mm. And, and that, that's what I think people have to realize, that the underlying thing is an attempt to fundamentally alter what America is. To say you were not founded when you were founded, you were founded in 1619, to say that your founders are all racist, to say that the constitution is not a document you can continue to use, and on and on and on. And what happens when you do this, a final thought, what happens when you do this is you say, okay, we will give up all of the things that we had, what do we do instead? And this is when you get great hucksters and fraudsters and suits like Kendi, who say, oh, I've thought about this deeply for literally months, and uh, you must all adopt my work. No, America cannot fall for this hucksterism, should not. You have raised so many important themes here, Douglas. Um, one of them, it seems to me, is this lack of, of a national self-confidence. And one of my questions would then be, perhaps before we're done, is, does this suggest a larger lack of civilizational confidence in what we've achieved here in the West, particularly Great Britain and the United States, in building decent, humane, liberal democratic societies? The lack of confidence in our, our own culture is kind of astonishing. But you're suggesting now there are international implications, political implications for this lack of confidence, which is a, a really important question to pursue, perhaps in another webinar. But I want to take it uh, to Calvin here. Um, we've got a question in the queue here, I notice. Uh, from John uh, Holsgrove, given the stranglehold on the narrative by business, media, and in particular, uh, education, academia, have we reached a point of no return? Is there a realistic chance that the uh, <laughs> the Khmer woke, as they're calling it, the Khmer woke, uh, and cancel culture can be rolled back? Calvin, because of your work in education, maybe you could take a stab at that question as you look at the scene uh, and your own efforts to try to push back. Go ahead. Absolutely, there's a chance to fight back in this, and we have to do exactly what they did and start in education. We have to reverse that long march through the institutions by marching through ourselves. So when I look at what's happening, and Niall mentioned, you know, our equalities minister, Kemi Badnock, who is the best we have right now, uh, stood up and said, critical race theory has no place in British schools. This idea that white people are privileged, black people are oppressed based on the color of their skin, to be teaching ideas like that as if they are fact, unchallenged is inappropriate in an educational setting. And that is by our Equalities um, Act of 1996, sorry, our Education Act of 1996. So, so that is already law, but it's just reminding teachers that that is law. And what we need to do is reverse this, this soft bigotry of low expectations. You know, I, all my time in schools, I've seen this idea that liberal, 
well-meaning, well-intentioned, white middle-class people want to support and encourage and help these poor ethnic minorities. And in doing so, they lower the standards and lower the expectations. And we're seeing this all across education, you know, from tertiary education into academia. The best universities in the country, you know, Oxford and Cambridge are lowering their entry expectations, their entry requirements for ethnic minority people to get in. That is that is the bigotry of low expectations. It's disgusting. It's it's going to create resentment, embarrassment. And what we need to do is instead raise those standards for all kids, no matter where they're from. Um, we just had a very successful race report in the UK that showed that actually what we need to be focusing on is looking at these communities that are doing really well. Uh, so, for example, Chinese kids in Britain do really well. Indian kids in Britain do really well. Why is that? Let's look at the core differences. And it, a lot of it breaks down to not race disparities, but, you know, class, uh, family structures, family backgrounds. In fact, the family has a lot to play in education. And we often forget that in the West, uh, which is why our standards keep dropping. But we also need to champion our successes. So if we encourage teachers to stop um, telling young black kids that, you know, this is an institutionally racist country and they're going to have so many hurdles and barriers to overcome. And if we stop self-perpetuating this myth of racism, um, then we can encourage success and say, actually, this is, you know, in the West, you have equal opportunities. If you work hard, you can achieve success. Um, and it doesn't matter what color skin you have in, in America or Great Britain. That is the case. If we tell young people that instead of the negative story, that will make a difference. Uh, you, you know, we have lots of groups campaigning to so-called decolonize the curriculum, which we know means to remove dead white men from the curriculum because a lot of this is essentially uh, racist propaganda. But instead, let's let's forget all these hocus pocus tokenist groups. You know, Black History Month, all of these idiot ideas and let's focus on teaching history holistically let's teach the good and the bad but stop dividing it based on skin color stop dividing it based on our immutable characteristics and bring it all back together to unite people on the things that bring us together such as you know in, in america teach that everyone is american it doesn't matter what skin color what religion and likewise in britain we're all british it doesn't matter where your parents came from or how long you've been here yes. and that is how we solve the problem Yes. A quick follow-up, if I could, Calvin, because, you know, of course, in America, we have a federal system. States have, an, have a, a really important authority uh, in education. The federal government has a role, many would say, an outsized role. You have a different system there. In terms of pushing back uh, at the education front, as you reflect on what Great Britain is trying to do, what would you perhaps then suggest here to, to your American friends as you reflect on, on the efforts there uh, with the administration of Boris Johnson? So I think it's going to be the same problem on both sides of the Atlantic. And what that is, is, is how we're training our teachers. We need to look at the teacher training institutions, look what's going on there. They're very liberal, very progressive, or what they'd call progressive, and they're undermining Western values because it is that self-flagellation. It is that, you know, we are bad, we are racist, we have terrible histories. We need to get rid of all that and start promoting the positive values that we all share. So if we start in where we're teaching our tr teachers, and then they can get back into schools and teach our kids correctly, we've got a long way to go to catch up but that is how we reverse it yes a generation long perhaps uh, effort but education being the key I, I, that sounds exactly right Niall over to you here and we'll, and we'll come back to Douglas you know, your own evaluation Niall of, of what the Prime Minister and his administration uh, have been doing to combat cancel culture if you could what what can we learn from that let's unpack that a little bit more as you think about uh, the efforts that they're taking over there yeah thank, thanks Joe and uh, I have to say that you know what Calvin was saying just now is so incredibly uh, important, actually. And 
uh, you know, we have to fight the left on the education front because their their agenda is so is so destructive on both sides of the of the Atlantic. And, and the work that, that Calvin is doing on, on the education front is is incredibly important. Uh, and uh, and Joe, uh, just briefly as well, I just wanted to uh, reference uh, also D Douglas's uh, excellent point about the the speech by Linda Thomas uh, Greenfield, the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, and the fact that America's enemies basically are taking the talking points delivered by officials from the Biden administration, and they're yes. using those talking points to attack America. Yes. And so uh, it's it's extraordinary. I mean, I, I can't think of a U.S. administration that you know in the past, uh, possibly the exception of the you know the Obama presidency that that actually did some public relations work for the enemies of, of the free world by attacking the United States. And so the Russians, the, the, the Chinese, uh, the, the Iranians, North Koreans so will be reciting exactly the speeches delivered by President Biden's own officials. Now, in the UK, I think it's a very different, um, you know, different situation because you have uh, a British government that is, it's very conservative, it's not, it's not perfect by any means, but uh, but uh, it's um, it is a, an administration that takes, I think, great pride in what Britain represents on the world stage. Takes great pride in British history. Boris Johnson has a, a tremendous understanding of of Britain's uh, great role uh, in in world history. And and I think that um, you know the big difference between one of the big differences between the the Biden presidency and the the Boris Johnson government is that. The, the Biden presidency uh, continually runs America down on the world stage, whereas the you know the, the Johnson government really um, you know takes pride, I think, in in what Britain represents and British history, and that that that's a big that's a big uh, difference and, and distinction, uh, and uh, and I think also you know the, the fact that you have the prime minister uh, willing to take a stand on so. There's a big debate over the removal of, of the Cecil Rhodes statue from Oriel College, which is actually my old uh, college in Oxford. Uh, and um, Boris Johnson stood up against the the calls to remove the Rhodes uh, the Rhodes statue, uh, and he said this this was uh, you know uh, this was the wrong way to go about things. Uh, this was uh, basically a very very dangerous move. Uh, and, and the British government strongly opposed the removal of statues such as the Rhodes uh, statue. And, and after all, and the Rhodes scholarships, the biggest scholarship uh, system in the world for universities, has benefited large numbers of people from all different races, actually, who have studied, studied at Oxford University. Uh, and, uh, and basically, the left wants to implement a sort of Taliban-style destruction. They want to tear down every statue uh, from the history of, of the British Empire, basically. And so, which is why the, the debate of the Rhodes Statue is so important, because if the left succeeds in tearing down Cecil Rhodes from a grade two listed building, they will then set their sights on every single statue from the, uh, from the imperial era. Uh, and there will be no end to the Taliban-style destruction uh, that, uh, that is, is implemented. For, fortunately, the British government is fighting against this. I, I don't think the Rhodes Statue is going to be brought down. But what you are seeing from from the UK side uh, is uh, is I think in part it, it's also the Brexit effect here, where you had uh, with with Brexit the British people standing up against the the left wing liberal elite saying enough is enough, 
uh, and Brexit is a massive game changer, and it resulted in uh, in a very conservative British government that's willing to stand up for for Britain. If we had still had Theresa May as Prime Minister or or David Cameron, uh, you would only see uh, the British government surrendering to council culture. And heaven forbid, if you had Jeremy Corbyn and, and the far left Labour Party in, in power, there, there'd be even more to the left than, than the Biden presidency. So fortunately, uh, we have a Brexit British government that is proud of Britain on the world stage, proud of British history, uh, and is standing up for, for British uh, institutions, and is standing up to the, the nefarious left-wing agenda that is being advanced by uh, by, by the uh, the left on both sides of the Atlantic. Well, Niall, it seems to me you're underscoring this connection that we've suggested, this connection between a national self-confidence and the ability to combat cancel culture. Back over to Douglas uh, on this. Douglas, you, you have this capacity, it seems to me, and all the panelists do as well. We've got an all-star panel here, I have to say. Someday I'll get to be on an all-star panel. I love moderating them, though. It's terrific to have you guys. Um, You've got this capacity, Douglas, to really speak with moral clarity, to get to the heart of the issue in a way that it's it's really hard to wiggle out of uh, the arguments that you make, it seems to me. And what I'm wondering is the uh, potential that you see to work with people who would consider themselves more on the center or center left. I mean, it, are we getting to a place where uh, even uh, some of our friends on the left realize this thing has gone too far? Do you do you? Do you see some uh, potential alliances in your many travels? Could you talk about that for a bit? Oh, oh sure. I mean, and uh, America is an absolutely clear example of that. I mean, you have very strong uh, voices against uh, cancel culture coming from the political left, the liberal so-called progressive side. You have prominent figures on the media like Bill Maher, uh, very strongly speaking against it. You have uh, you know, people are basically who would have said liberal uh, uh, figures in the media, like Barry Weiss, um, centrist figures, I think, like Andrew Sullivan, uh, all of whom are people who found themselves on the wrong side of the cancel culture thing. And, and, and you know, everyone's finding common cause. And this is looking ever less like a left-right thing than a um, th than some other reconfiguration of, of, of the debate. And I think there's a reason for that, by the way, if I may very quickly say, which is that yes. the striking thing about the people who are pushing through the cancel culture is that how extraordinarily dogmatic, dogmatic and assertive they are. They assert all sorts of things about history, but they always seem to turn out to be the least knowledgeable people in any room. For <laughs> instance, uh, one of the leaders of uh, the campaign to pull down the statue to Cecil Rhodes at Niles old college in Oxford. Uh, last year when this was going round again in this discussion, by the way, none of them know anything about Cecil Rhodes as the ethics, uh, Regis Professor of Ethics at Oxford, uh, Nigel Bigger showed, when he just showed that they were just making stuff up of quotes that they said Cecil Rhodes had said. But but the point is that one of the leaders of the, the uh, Rhodes Must Fall campaign just last year uh, said that Cecil Rhodes's wealth should be, uh, should be used for better ends, such as they said, uh, setting up a scholarship, and is it what like the Rhodes Scholarship? You mean, or uh, or indeed the Rhodes Mandela Scholarship, as it, as it has been in recent <laughs> decades, ever since Nelson Mandela took it. So, uh, th these people know nothing, but, the, but 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 and this is an important point, I think, because on both sides of the Atlantic, I think we have to realise this. Most people don't, for instance, know very much about the history of empire, but it's not because 
they're wicked people and the empire was all terrible and everyone just has to feel guilty. It's that not, nobody knows very much about anything historically. When people say, student, I was doing a discussion the other week with an American filmmaker who said, uh, not many people in America know about this particular race riot in the 1920s. Not many people in America know anything about any history. And I'm not insulting my hosts here. A poll last year showed a majority of young Americans did not know that six million Jews died in the Holocaust. If they don't know that six million Jews died in the Holocaust, it might be understandable that they don't know about every single incident from history that the left would now like, the radical left, the council culture left, would like to push on the society and say that it is guilty because it is ignorant. These people themselves are making up this history as they go along. The 1619 Project, sorry to say it again, but it is, an, it is a creation of the New York Times. It is not something the New York Times is reporting on. It is a creation of the New York Times to fundamentally alter the American historical narrative. That project itself is woefully historically inaccurate, as it would be if it is set up and run as it is by non-historian activists. So I think that one of the crucial things on both sides of the Atlantic is that we lose this idea that the people who pretend to know mo most about all this and are trying to intimidate and bully everyone else know anything very much. They don't. We have to turn around to them and ask them some of the very basic questions that anyone should have. Basically interrogate people who are trying to pick apart our entire societies. If you're going to pick apart an entire society, you ought to have some idea of what that society is. And the people who are our major critics at the moment have no idea at all. Yes. Douglas, uh, brilliantly put, as always, what you're suggesting, it seems to me, is rather than always being on the defensive, conservatives and others need to go on the offensive and expose the sheer rank ignorance of this cancel culture crowd in so many ways. I know the reference is often overused to, to George Orwell, but this is such an Orwellian moment, it seems to me, that 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 uh, that poignant, frightening quotation from Orwell, he who controls the present controls the past, he who controls the past controls the future. This attempt to control, to manipulate the past, to bring about some kind of utopian future. Well, we're, we're in the thick of it, aren't we, gentlemen? We're in the thick of it. Uh, Calvin, what would you say, in, in, maybe in response to some of that, this does seem to be an education fight because we're involved in this, this kind of assault against memory itself, historical memory itself, and given your engagement in, edu in education, I, I taught at a, the King's College in New York City for about a decade. And so I, I found that to be a deeply encouraging situation because the students are not necessarily cynical coming in. They're skeptical uh, about uh, our nation, its values. But boy, if you lay out uh, an honest, compelling narrative, you can see really a constructive, positive response. That's been my experience. Calvin, what about for yourself there uh, in Great Britain? I agree entirely. And I also love that Douglas started out by saying we have to be careful what we say on the internet because we could be quoted out of context and then goes on to say, not many Americans know anything about any history. <laughs> that was fantastic. Um, but yeah, I think we need to we need to start calling this what it is. And it, it is, you know, uh, I think Douglas also talked about this, this reformulating of the country and it's, it's neo-Marxism, isn't it? They want to break down our way of life so that they can rebuild it in an anti-capitalist, anti-family, anti-police, anti-white um, establishment. And 
you know, if I approach this from an educationalist point of view, again, it comes back down to how we teach history in schools and we need to stop teaching. Um, there is no such thing, in my opinion, as black history. We should be teaching history holistically in a sense of, you know, over here we teach British history, we teach European history, we teach world history. It's key events and influential people that have helped shape our nation. And that would be the same in America. Um, so we need to, again, try and look at ways of doing this without bringing it down to our skin color and down to our race. And if, if people want to do that, we need to call them out for what they are, racist, and not be afraid of saying that. On the, on the right, we tend to be shy about these things. And as long as people aren't, you know, a, a pushing their views on us we let them get away with whatever they want to do as long as they're not harming us but that's by the by the time it gets to us by the time it gets to them pushing their views onto us it's too late so we need to stand up and make a make a statement now while they're doing it and expose them for what they are you know this this past year or so since the black lives matter riots i've experienced more racial abuse than i have in the entirety of my adult life and that comes from the, the hard left it comes from these so-called anti-racists just as we see the so-called anti-fascists pushing pushing their fascist regime of you must think like us otherwise you are a bad evil person it's the same with the anti-racists who are you know you must think like us as a brown person otherwise you are a and i won't I won't say the words that they call me because they are racially derogatory and, and really offensive slurs. But the point I'm getting at is we need to stand up, call them what they are, not be ashamed of that and be proud to push our values in retaliation for them pushing theirs, which are, you know, we have good values, family values, Christian values, American values, British values. These are positive things. Their values are negative. They're anti-British or anti-American or anti-Christian. Um, so we need to have, we need to push forward our positive approach and that will gain the center ground. It will gain the center left. These people who see the clowns for what they are and think, actually, that's a bit too extreme for me. What else is there? Oh, there's the positive alternative. It's conservatism. And that's what, that's why we need to do it. Yeah. So you're hopeful about the capacity to, to really gain that center ground. Uh, and I think there's something here on the American side, we could probably really take to heart. Uh, Niall, and we got a, we got a few minutes left. I want to maybe wrap up with Douglas giving him the last word. And, and uh, uh, But Niall, I want to ask you um, if Great Britain has been kind of importing some of our dysfunction here uh, and running with it, you know, Black Lives Matter movement, et cetera. Um, well, can America import maybe some of what Great Britain is doing to beat back the cancel culture in ways we haven't maybe fully considered? And I'll, I'll put that question really to any of you guys here, but let me start with Niall. What can we, we've been, we've been uh, unpacking it a bit, but what can we import from Great Britain in the way that we go about this? Because Douglas has, has, has correctly acknowledged we've got here not only an ideological problem, but we have a te technological problem too, don't we? The structures of modern life make the yapping dog uh, potentially a universal yapping dog, a global yapping dog. That's a technological problem. There's no easy fix for that. But how do we mitigate it? What can we import from Great Britain that they're doing right? Over to you, Niall. And you're muted, it seems, Niall. <laughs> Sorry. That's a great question there, uh, there Joe. Uh, and uh, I think that, um, you know, I firstly, uh, you know, if you look at some of the, the legislation that's uh, being put through Parliament of the UK on the cultural wars uh, issues. Um, this legislation, I think, is, is potentially a role model for, uh, for US legislators as well. Once you have uh, a, a conservative you know, administration uh, in, in place. And so, uh, but, but I do think in many, many respects, what the British are doing 
uh, is legislatively a, a role model. I think secondly, uh, and I was reading this um, the statement by the, the Russell Group of Universities in the United Kingdom. So the Russell Group are, are the sort of the 24 most prestigious British universities, the, the elite universities. They came together and put out a statement in defense of free speech. Uh, it's a very powerful uh, statement. Uh, in part, it's a result of pressure being applied by the British government. Uh, but it, it's a tremendous statement. It's, a, it's the kind of statement that US universities should be, should be publishing. Uh, and, uh, and while, of course, in, in the UK with higher education, there are huge problems there, and the left have, you know, have been dominant, I would say, in higher education in the UK for many, many decades. But what you're now seeing is, uh, is, is a fight back on British campuses in favor of free speech. We need to see that fight back taking place in the United States uh, as well. Uh, and uh, we need to see, you know, elite US universities standing up for freedom of speech. So far, they haven't. They've surrendered at every single opportunity to the to the left. And that, that includes uh, my my alma mater, a graduate school alma mater, Yale. That includes universities like Harvard, Princeton, and so on. Um, these these universities need to uh, need to follow what the British Russell Group have done and actually declare that they believe in freedom of speech. And that would be extremely important. And th there's so much more that can be, can be done uh, on so many fronts. And, and I think as, as Calvin has pointed out so eloquently, uh, and as Kevin Badenoch has pointed out, critical race theory has no place in American schools as well. Uh, and, and it has no place, of course, in British schools. But, but that, that, is, that is a message that applies on this side of the Atlantic here in the United States as well. It's a very powerful message Yes, uh, and so so the, there's so much that can be done on so so many fronts, uh, Joe, and yes. and this has been a, a tremendous uh, discussion today and a very important discussion. Uh, thank you for that uh, emphasis on the responsibility of educational institutions to step up and remember what's part of their founding mission, moral mission. Calvin, I want to give you I want a question to you, and then over to Douglas quickly. Calvin, one of the questions I have is. If you're standing in front of a kind of a Black Lives Matter crowd, maybe you're, you're, you're getting ready to deliver a talk, you're at a, 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 a university setting and you've got a Black Lives Matter a panelist or a crowd there, what message do you would you deliver to them? What do you want to tell them about what they're trying to accomplish, your own life experience, the reason you're in this fight? What do they need to hear? I think what they need to hear is that they're being manipulated and that we have equal opportunities under the law so anyone can achieve whatever they set their minds to as long as they work hard enough and it's not okay to be stuck in a victimhood mentality I, I, it's not their fault that they're in this mentality but it's not okay to be staying in it uh, this idea that if you don't achieve success if you don't get to where you want to be in life it's the fault of someone else it's the fault of the state being racist or the police being racist or the job you applied for the the people working there being racist just assuming that everything is down to race is a perception issue and it undermines actual racism that is occurring and needs to be stumped out. I, I think people need to take personal responsibility for their lives again and that's a good thing. Uh, we have a sense of service and duty to our family, to our community, to our country. If we refine that, uh, we owe it to ourselves to have a sense of service and duty to our own selves as well and not to push uh, the blame onto other people or society or institutions so yes. that's what i would tell them and i would also probably be a bit provocative and say yes of course black lives matter because all lives matter it's quite simple that's brave and brilliant uh, calvin and douglas over to you this is kind of a personal question you can take it wherever you like though here uh douglas i am i am curious as to what 
continues to motivate you uh, in the in this fight? The books that you've written, the speeches that you give, you get canceled. You've had all kinds of threats, but you you stay uh, in the game in the arena. And I'd I'd like to know what what drives you, what motivates you in this in this struggle. Well, uh, first of all, I, I don't get cancelled. Uh, I'd I, I like to boast that I'm uncancellable. That might always be a hostage to fortune. But uh, I, I think there's a reason for it, which is that I answer to no one other than my readers. Uh, and I have nobody in my life above me who is weak and vulnerable. Uh, and that is where people are in danger in the, in the era of cancel culture. The, the, the chihuahuas come for the person above you and try to intimidate them so that they shut you up. That's yeah. the deal. That's how this works. And if you have in your life anyone above you who is weak, pusillanimous, and easily bullied and easily cowed, then you are as, as weak and vulnerable potentially as they are. So this is, this is a big structural problem. And I'm very fortunate. I've arranged my life in such a way that I don't have cowardly, weak people uh, um, uh, speaking for me above me. And, uh, and I, I wish everyone was in that position, but not everyone is. As for the motivation point, if I may say so, I mean, this goes back both to uh, the first thing you said, Joe, and also to something that Calvin was asked by you and very elegantly, uh, in a very British way, dodged, which was your question about self-motivation. I understand why he dodged it. We're, we're never very good at it, we're blowing our own trumpets. Let me blow a trumpet for Calvin, however, since this is, among other things, the first time that I've had the pleasure to do an event with him and it's taken our friends in Washington to get these two Brits together, but uh, only three Brits, I might say. But uh, um, I think there is, there is, if I may say so, Calvin, a, a very clear explanation of why he does what he does, uh, which is that he has a commitment to truth. Uh, that is an absolute foundation stone of our culture. It is an absolute foundation stone uh, of anyone committed to uh, philosophy, to the life of the mind, to thought, um, and to much more, to virtue, you might say. And the interesting thing about the cancel culture thing to date is that it does keep throwing people up. Not enough, but there are more and more. Uh, Paul Rossi from uh, Grace Church School in Manhattan and other teachers, a very good example recently. Uh, so what is interesting is as this cancel culture sweeps across the culture, it does throw up people, very interestingly, who say no. And why do they say no? Almost always because they will not agree to lies. Yeah. They will not agree to lie when they're told to lie. Now, the interesting thing is that historically, um, we are fortunate that such people come along. A long time ago, Socrates was one. In more recent memory, all the dissidents in Eastern Europe, uh, who, who, who we revere still to this day, uh, were people who said, no, you may tell me to lie, you may fill my ears with lies, you may fill my world with lies, but I will not utter the lie. Now today, the interesting thing is, people are coming up and saying that. And I just think that here's a challenge. It must happen more because unpleasant as it is to be canceled, to be no platformed, even to have your career uh, uh, potentially jeopardized as some teachers have had, is nothing compared to what our predecessors have gone through in every generation before us. It is nothing compared to that. Two generations ago, our forefathers would have laughed at the opportunity merely to consider deplatforming as the worst thing that could happen to you in your life, not being published by some rag that nobody reads anyway. Uh, 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 the point is, is that now 
what is inexplicable is that so few people for the time have come forward when the price is relatively low that you pay. So people need to speak up, they need to come forward, the people who hold on to truth need to make their voices heard. We are far larger in number than the people who want to spread the lies. There is no doubt in my, I've, I've fought many unwinnable battles in my life. This is an eminently winnable one. So we should win. That is a brilliant, brilliant word and message to leave us with. And I'll leave us with one more uh, wonderful message from another wonderful Brit, the late Sir Roger Scruton, also committed to truth. Uh, Douglas, in the way you described, you said, good things are easily destroyed, but not easily created. Thank you, gentlemen, for your participation in this event. Um, uh, our audience here, thank you for joining us. This will be available online, I think, within 48 hours. It's been a terrific session, gentlemen. God bless all your good work. Take care.